and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about political participation in civil society here in the United States. And we look at one of the largest Iranian-American organizations who has been doing that for many years here in Washington. My guest today is Jamal Abdi, president of the National Iranian-American Council here in Washington. Jamal, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you for having me, Negar. Thanks for being with us. Let's talk about your organization first. What is the National Iranian-American Council, or as we like to call it, NIAC? NIAC is the, well, the largest Iranian-American grassroots organization. We were formed in 2002 as a means to ensure Iranian-Americans have a voice in the civic and political process. Um, for a long time, there were many issues about Iran and issues that impact Iranian Americans that were being debated in the halls of power in Washington, and there were no Iranian American voices actually at the table. Um, and our community was not engaged in that process. Iranian Americans, you know, um, weren't organizing politically, weren't getting involved in civic life. And as an immigrant community that really was focused on, um, you know, educational success, academic success, business success, our relative uh, success in politics was was quite low. And so since 2002, we've been working to build that platform so that Iranian Americans can be involved in our government, in our democracy, and that, so that we can uh, push for policies that, uh, you know, a majority of our community supports. So. Uh, diplomacy to resolve differences with Iran and with the hope of uh, enabling, you know, greater openings inside of Iran so that the Iranian people can decide for themselves what their government is going to look like. Um, preventing war, uh, fighting against sanctions, uh, and then protecting our rights here at home. Um, mm -hmm. More recently, I think we've, we've really kind of broadened our mandate a little bit because of all the issues that do impact us that don't have anything to do with foreign policy. And while we're not an exclusively foreign policy organization, there are issues like the Muslim ban, um, like immigration policies, like civil rights policies that do impact our community. And we're making sure that if you're an Iranian American, if you care about civic life um, and you want to have a voice on these issues, we provide the platform and the organization to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So for those who are not in Washington or maybe even in the U.S. in our audience, what is a grassroots organization, meaning who funds it? Who gives you money to do all the great work that you do? Yeah. So the majority of our funding comes from our members and supporters. So ordinary Iranian Americans who care about this mission and want to be involved and support it. Um, and you know, similar to you, you look at like the Bernie Sanders campaign versus, um, I don't know, the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, we're more on the side of small donations, um, trying to get as many people involved as possible. And what makes us grassroots is that, you know, our power comes from our membership. So we have offices in D.C. We have um, our policy team that goes to the Hill to advocate to members of Congress and works with the administration. But our credibility and our power comes from the fact that we have this community behind us and that we're able to speak on behalf of um, of people across the country who care about these things. And then we also have our chapters where, you know, you care about these issues and you don't even have to be Iranian American, but 
We um, help to organize people in their congressional districts, in their in their Senate states, and to meet with their representatives, meet with their elected officials, tell them what we want them to do, and hold them accountable for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the rest of our funding, you know, the, I think it's about it's um, 70 30. 70% is donors, Iranian Americans, uh, non Iranian Americans who care about peace and civil rights and immigration. And then the, the rest of our funding comes from uh, American foundations. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, institutions like Rockefeller Brothers Foundation, Plowshares Fund. Um, uh, Open Society Institute. So these foundations, these philanthropic foundations that support many organizations uh, that do similar things for other communities or on other issues, um, that's where we get the the remainder of our funding. We do not take any um, funding from the U.S. government. We certainly do not take any funding from the Iranian government. We're an independent organization, um, a civil society organization. And so that independence is really important. You mentioned the Iranian government. I want to talk a little more about that because we hear some of that in the community here in the U.S. and even beyond U.S. borders and now some in Iran who are misinformed. First of all, you say you don't get money from the Iranian government. Is it even possible to lobby for the Iranian government in Washington? Because I know you have some background on the Hill and you understand lobbying in this town, which is a very complex world, even for myself, after so many years. Can you even lobby for the Iranian government? Um, with the sanctions and lobbying rules, I'm actually not sure if there is possibly a way that if the Iranian government wanted to set up a lobby that they could hire lawyers. Um, like There are exceptions in the sanctions to, to hire legal representation. I'm actually not even sure if that applies to lobbying. Mm-hmm. I can tell you if the Iranian government did try to hire lobbyists, they probably would have a difficult time finding them, although there are plenty of unscrupulous lobbyists who lobby for very bad things on behalf of Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE and, and others in the region. Um, but that being said, I don't think that an Iran lobby would have very much success in Washington. And mm-hmm. the difficulty in setting something like that up would be um, pretty serious and would require, I think, a serious investment of resources. Um, but that's a long way of saying, like, this is a very uninformed and I think deliberately misleading uh, accusation or conversation. First of all, there are many organizations like NIAC in different communities, whether you want to talk about in the Jewish community, a group like J Street that is not this dangerous organization or has all these accusations about it, although they, they get their share from from the far right pro-Israel crowd. Um, or, you know, nurses uh, organizations, um, environmental lobbies. Mm-hmm. Other This is how politics works in this country, that you have interest groups that advocate either for their communities or for their, you know, their corporate lobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not, this is not nefarious. This is not a conspiracy. This is how politics works. And I think that there is this deliberate effort to mislead, particularly Iranian Americans, mm-hmm. and to kind of use the the threats from the homeland, you know, use the threats of, you know, if you engage in political activism inside of Iran, whether it was under the the Shah regime or the Islamic Republic regime, the, you know, there were big disincentives from doing that. And, you know, and, and the doors to power were not open. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and trying to leverage that to try to silence Iranian Americans and to scare them from being a part of the process. And one way to do that 
is to suggest that this very normal organization that is kind of part of the fabric of civic life in the United States is somehow doing something nefarious because we are meeting with elected officials, because we are trying to advocate for these positions. And so while structurally an Iran lobby in Washington would be, I think, next to impossible to actually mm. set up, but who knows? If you have enough money, you can probably do anything. But on the other hand, like if we were a foreign uh, agent lobbying on behalf of a foreign government, we'd have to disclose that. You know, when I was on the Hill, we if we had meetings with lobbyists who were paid guns for the Saudis or whoever, they would actually have to say to us at the beginning of the meeting, you know, disclaimer, I am acting on behalf of a foreign government. Mm -hmm. um, that's the law. So if you don't do that, you're violating the law. Let me make a note here that for those who don't know, as you just mentioned, FARA or the Foreign Agent Registration Act is, is a pretty serious process here in Washington. Like you're saying, there is domestic lobbying on, on a various range of different things, but there's lobbying on behalf of foreign governments, which is something that needs to be transparent. You need to be registered in Washington. And if you don't, meaning if you secretly lobby for a foreign government, take money from them and do try to push their agenda in Washington, it is basically a serious crime. So when someone accuses you when you're not a registered agent or where you're not taking money from the Iranian government to lobby for them, when someone accuses you of lobbying for the Islamic Republic, they're basically basically accusing you of violating the FARA, um, which is a serious crime, and on top of that, violating probably multiple U.S. sanctions, which is also pretty serious in this town. Right. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's, it's an even higher bar because of the sanctions. And I just think, I mean, there are so many sanctions on Iran, um, and particularly under this administration, where there have been days where they have issued not tens of sanctions, but sanctioned hundreds of entities and individuals at once. If you try to sell a pistachio in the United States that is embargoed, you're probably going to get caught. Mm -hmm. So the notion that NIAC could function as you know, an organization that is very critical of the Trump administration um, and that we have been through the fire. I mean, we have um, we went through a discovery process um, a few years ago as part of an effort to try to um, <laughs> get some of our critics to stop lying about us. Um, and all of nice emails were put into the public. And so full full disclosure and transparency. Mm -hmm. uh, we were attacked by Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz earlier this year who wanted us to be investigated for FARA violations and encouraged Trump to look into that. Mm -hmm. Any t But the notion that like, we'd still be operating, that we wouldn't have been shut down and, and exposed is just so incredulous. It's just, and it preys on the low information about these issues, both broadly in America and within our community. Mm -hmm. But I guarantee you, if any of these accusations about us were true, they would have been resolved long ago, um, definitely by the Trump administration and most likely by the Obama administration, who was no, uh, no softy on Iran either. Exactly. As an organization to, you know, have an office, have an actual brand in Washington and to survive for over a decade. Um, it's just it's like you're saying it's there's a lot of misinformation flying around. But let's get back to why Nayak is being attacked. You're obviously doing something. You have some power impact that you're getting so much pushback. What does NIAC stand for that makes someone like Tom Cotton or Ted Cruz or, uh, you know, by extension, people with connections to the State Department so angry that they throw so much at you, including misinformations and accusations? Well, I mean, you know, 
politics is a blood sport. We are the opposition. We are standing in the way of what Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz um, think is the right policy pathway, which is, you know, I mean, let's cut the BS. Tom Cotton wants to go to war with Iran. I don't care if he hasn't. I mean, I think he's actually come pretty close to actually saying it. But these guys want a confrontation with Iran. They kind of view themselves and view the United States as, you know, this power that is going to go and topple the government in Iran and recast it in our image. And they didn't learn a thing about, you know, uh, from the Iraq example or all the other failed regime change and, you know, U.S. militarism examples. Um, but the other thing is that this is also... A highly charged political issue because, um, you know, the the Israel lobby, the pro-Israel lobby is really powerful. The Saudi lobby, I mean, they're not very influential anymore, thanks to the fact that MBS, you know, has uh, not missed an opportunity to expose himself as, you know, a, a craven and uh, a dangerous autocrat. Mm. Um, but there's there's so much money in this field right now. Pumped into, uh, pumped into lobbyists, pumped into organizations, both from, you know, on the pro-Israel side, from Americans, people like Sheldon Adelson, the largest single donor to the Republican Party and to the Trump uh, campaign, um, and many others. So there's so much money in this business that for a Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz, it's not just something where they agree with the policies of war and they view NIAC as a problem because we are organizing Iranian-American voices and, you know, broader voices against those types of policies. But then also it's it's just it's good fundraising for them. They get to go to Sheldon and say, hey, look, you know, we're, we're attacking, uh, you know, the, the, the pro-diplomacy organizations and we're dismantling these groups. And so a little bit of it is showmanship. And, you know, I, I actually don't think they believe what they say about us. They do believe what they say about Iran and their desire to um, to really to, to foment eventually a war with Iran. And so that's that's what this is about. It's about politics and money and policy preferences. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about NIAC's positions a little bit, um, which makes that side very angry. You don't lobby for the regime, but you're still against sanctions. You are against war. You have opposed the travel ban. How do you come up with these uh, positions basically as a grassroots organization and like you're saying an organization that represents at least part of the Iranian American community we seek to be as democratic and representative as possible um, so we, we do a, a survey every year to gauge where our members stand on the issues and what they want us to prioritize um, and that sets the mandate you know between our membership and our board that sets the mandate for what issues we prioritize what positions we take on these things um, and then you know we have a, a a staff and an advisory board that helps to um, develop these uh, positions the great thing though about an organization like ours and i think you know when people talk about politics and you know the elections process there's a lot of frustration that you know, these lawmakers, all they do is go around having to fundraise. And so they're beholden to their donors and they only do what's political, po politically popular to get reelected. Well, doing what's politically popular to get reelected is actually kind of a good thing because it gives an accountability mechanism so that these representatives do what we want them to do in order to stay elected. Mm -hmm. The problem is when they start to only focus on, you know, large donors and corporate interests and that really distorts 
who they're representing. For NIAC, because we are this grassroots organization, because our funding comes from our community, we are held accountable to our community. I have to, as the president, frequently check in and make sure, you know, are we sort of in step with what the community's desires are? Are we on top of things in terms of the issues? Are we truly representing that base of support that we have? Because if not, they're not going to continue to support us. So it is this this, uh, this relationship where we are dependent on one another, and that keeps us accountable to representing what our membership wants us to do. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that um, you know, our survey is not a, um, it's not like a poll of the community. It's not necessarily, it's not a representative sample because these are people who opt in, you know, this is like surveying, you know, a magazine subscription list or something like that. Mm-hmm. So this is, we're surveying a, a certain segment of our community. However, there is an annual poll that, um, mm-hmm. the organization Paya does. And that poll Every single year, no matter what you read on Twitter, where people are claiming they speak for our community or what people are yelling about on satellite TV, mm-hmm. look at the data. The polling always coincides with what Nayak is actually doing. It's always, you know, no war. We don't like the government in Iran, but we think we got to engage with them in order to make life better for Iranians and prevent bad things from happening for America. Uh, we don't like sanctions that hurt ordinary people. Um, and so so these are sort of the data points that we use to make sure that as we're going forward with these things, or if we want to take a bold position, we're not um, we're not getting outside of where there actually is support for these things so that we can actually do our job mm-hmm. effectively. Let me explain a little bit about this for those who are not in Washington or even in the U.S. Paya that you mentioned or the Public Affairs Alliance of Iranian Americans is another nonprofit organization here in Washington, D.C. that works on similar issues. And the poll that you mentioned is basically an opinion poll of the Iranian American community, not just their members, like you're mentioning, of like your survey, they're doing an actual poll of the opinion of the community. And you mentioned some of the points about warring sanctions, but I want to um, hear a little more on how the community um, thinks and believes when it comes to issues of Iran. If you can give a little more details when it comes to war, when it comes to sanctions, to diplomacy, meaning engaging with the Islamic Republic, and also human rights. The, you know, being against war is the easy one that everybody agrees with. What's the percentage of that? Um, I want to, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I, I think it's around 75%. It's really high. It's basically the majority of the community has consistently said that they are against starting a war with Iran. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and for what it's worth, I do think that there are advocates within our community who do support U.S. led regime change, who do support the sanctions, who support Trump and maximum pressure. Mm. Even they will say they're against war. And, you know, I think even Tom Cotton claims he's against war. Pompeo claims they're against war. So this is like, if you are pro-war, that is the third rail for you. And few people are willing to actually admit it. Mm. Um, On sanctions, what's really interesting is that, you know, it ebbs and flows. Um, So after the Green Movement, I think there was a little bit more interest in, in sanctions. Um, and then, you know, after the November, um, Mm -hmm. uh, 2017 protests and then the more recent protests last year, the interest in sanctions rises, but 
by and large, people support sanctions that are targeted. And I think this is a big misconception because mm -hmm. political sanctions, meaning targeting actual officials as opposed to broad economic sanctions that mostly hurt the people. Right. Right. So if it's like, you know, OK, we're going to go and punish Khamenei or we're going to punish, you know, uh, officials or, or target the Revolutionary Guard, people say, yeah, let's let's do that. But they don't want to do sanctions that hurt ordinary people or that punishes Iranian society broadly. Mm -hmm. And so you'll even have like the advocates of maximum pressure saying, yes, we support maximum pressure, but we don't support sanctions that hurt ordinary people. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is that the sanctions, like, we, are, we are way past the ability to target our sanctions. We are sanctioning the entire Iranian economy. Every single bank, save a handful of private banks, which um, some of the hawkish groups are now trying to um, in what are hopefully Trump's final days in office, try to get him to actually sanction even those few private banks that are not sanctioned in Iran that handle humanitarian transactions. They're trying to get those banks sanctioned. Um, so everything inside of Iran is sanctioned, is embargoed, it's not targeted. And the theory behind these sanctions is not that we're going to put targeted pressure on officials within the government. The theory is we're going to punish Iranian society to cause Iranians to rise up and to seek to have another revolution inside of the country. That is what it is. You know, I don't think anybody can credibly debate that point, given what mm -hmm. these sanctions are doing. And I think there is a misunderstanding of there has been in the community. But over the years, there, there was this misunderstanding that sanctions are targeting the regime or targeting the nuclear program are only political. But over the years, I think with the actual um, um, experience or seeing the reality of sanctions, most Iranian Americans have some ties uh, to the country. They either have family or friends or they're in contact with their loved ones. And they've seen, we have seen that there's no such thing as targeted economic sanctions. And it's the real people on the ground, middle class, working class Iranians who are paying the price. And I think um, this sentiment, this anti, at least economic sanctions sentiment has grown. And the information and knowledge of how sanctions are affecting Iranians has also grown in the community. And I agree with you. And I've seen the poll it's the majority but there is a there is a smaller minority who is more vocal so if you just look at the community and not the poll you might seem like that those loud voices are the majority but in reality they're not because when you look at the poll you see that the majority of the Iranian American community across the country are actually opposed to war and sanctions let's talk about human rights a little bit because there's also this myth or rumor around that Nayak is always silent on human rights violations or Nayak is shy of criticizing the Islamic Republic for violating human rights. Nayak doesn't support human rights defenders. Tell me a little bit about your organization's work on human rights and what the community basically or your members um, want you to do when it comes to human rights violations in Iran, which is a long list. The, the challenge with human rights is how do we actually improve the situation for human rights? So for Nayak, we'll never shy away from condemning human rights abuses, from spotlighting cases of abuse, from condemning those abuses. And what's really important, though, is we're doing that as a non-Iranian entity. We're an American entity. So we're not here to talk about 
Iran's domestic politics and laws and to try to insist that we get a voice in that process as outsiders. But what where we do feel that it is appropriate for us to have a role is when Iran is violating its international obligations. Um, and that's really important because human rights needs to be something we approach with credibility. It cannot be um, viewed as a political tool that is exploited because then th there's no way to have success. Then every government exploits human rights for their own for their own interests. And unfortunately, you know, I see a lot of this crowd that is critical of Nyack instrumentalizing human rights not just to try to advocate for their preferred policy towards Iran, which, fine, if you think that fomenting a revolution or a U.S.-imposed regime change is the best pathway to securing human rights, then that's at least an argument and you are pursuing that pathway. Fine. I, I disagree. I don't think that's the pathway, but fair enough. But when they start to use human rights actually because they have an interest in, we want to install we want to install Pahlavi back into the throne and dictate for Iranians what they get. That doesn't seem like a very pro-human rights position to be dictating what happens inside of Iran from outside. And then even worse, when human rights is used as this cudgel to try to attack opponents. So, for instance, there's this campaign to spotlight the case of uh, Nasrin Sotudeh. And I'm seeing on Twitter, people are using that campaign to try to criticize um, other advocates that, hey, you didn't sign on to this letter, so you must be pro-regime. Mm. And that has, that. has how is that benefiting anybody? How is that advancing human rights? For us, if there's an opportunity to positively benefit human rights, we will take it. Um, our view is that the best way to actually improve the human rights situation is to uh, end some of the isolation of Iran, end the isolation of Iran's economy, end the embargo and the political isolation of the Iranian people, reduce the threat of U.S. war and pressure, and give Iranians and Iranian civil society more maneuverability and capital to be able to challenge their government, challenge their system, and demand those human rights. Mm -hmm. And if there are actually economic um, attachments, you know, if, if Europe and, and Japan and others are seeking to invest in Iran, that is further pressure for Iran to actually observe these human rights standards and norms. We have taken action such as, you know, we organized the efforts in Congress back in uh, 2010 or 2011 to support the establishment of a human rights rapporteur at the United Nations for Iran, a multilateral mechanism that we believed would have a positive effect. And, you know, while it's there's up and ups and downs, we now have evidence, you know, that rapporteur position has um, led to improvements inside of Iran. You know, I mean, we'll take what we can get, but the reduction of executions and things like that, it's not perfect, but it's progress. Because the United Nations as an international entity has so much more credibility when it comes to these issues as opposed to, let's say, the State Department spearheading human rights in Iran. Yeah, and spearheading it in a way that can be, whether it's distorted or <laughs> properly sussed out, can be... Um, discredited as a political act by, you know, the U.S. that has ulterior motives. You know, when Pompeo talks about human rights in Iran and then is like, you know, practically sitting on bin Salman's lap when he's in Saudi Arabia yucking it up, like that's not a very, that, that exposes that campaign not as one about human rights, but about, you know, political ulterior motives and things like that. And I think that's damaging mm -hmm. to human rights. 
And let me also make a note about what you were saying about the civil society, because I hear this from a lot of people, not that vocal minority here in Washington, but civil society activists actually on the ground who say exactly the same thing. And this is not just the case for Iran. When you put economic pressure on ordinary people, especially in a country like Iran, that a lot of activism and civil society is on voluntary base. People don't get paid to do this kind of work. So now activists have to be dealing with two, three jobs or unemployment, basically economic pressure, uh, which takes away from the time and energy that they could put on activism. And basically when you have uh, when you have to you know suffer for your need for bread freedom always comes second and then also this issue of more repression and closing of the political space inside Iran which is a direct impact of the maximum pressure campaign which is what Iranian civil society activists are the, the pressure that they're under and they're paying the price for it with you know more prison sentences more arrests and just more limitations on what they can do as activists and sometimes even journalists um, let's move back to the U.S. domestic space. Your organization, Nayak, for the first time has endorsed a candidate for president. You just endorsed Joe Biden. Does that mean Nayak is a is a Democratic organization, first of all? And basically, how did you come up with that process? How did that happen? So Nayak is, is a nonpartisan organization. And I should make clear, you know, we have we have NIAC that is our um, our educational sort of nonpartisan nonpolitical organization where a lot of our kind of you know think tank uh, type of materials come from, where how we develop some certain policy positions, and then NIAC Action is our sister organization that engages in endorsing candidates, encouraging people to vote for those candidates, um, lobbying for issues and things like that. And it's a newer organization, NIAC Action. NAC actually we formed it in 2015 ahead of the 2016 elections, which did not necessarily go as as we had hoped. Um, we haven't endorsed in a presidential election. We have endorsed, and we 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 you know prioritize endorsing in congressional elections. We decided this year, like I I personally view this election as existential for our country, you know, for the United States, for democracy. I I am just, I mean, you know, I I think everybody. Uh, this is everybody knows this, but I I am just terrified about what happens next and how much uh, our democracy has been winnowed away over these past four years. Mm-hmm. Um, but guess what? This is not my personal fiefdom. I don't get to dictate those types of things. I thought that this was something that really we needed to turn to our membership because myself, the staff, a number of our volunteers um, felt like, look, we cannot we cannot wake up the day after the election and see that the person who imposed a ban on our families, uh, who nearly took the U.S. to war with Iran on multiple occasions, that is Mm -hmm. punishing our families inside of Iran, that is punishing our friends and our allies and other immigrant communities here in the United States, and we could have done more and we didn't. And so while, you know, we could all personally go and phone bank for Biden um, to make sure that Trump doesn't win another term, we turned it to our members and we, we, we held a vote. We asked, you know, we haven't done this before. We didn't endorse in 2016 because in a national presidential election, you endorse one side or the other. It does look like it's a partisan act. It can be misconstrued. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're not necessarily going to get, um, you know, these elections are, you know, basically 50-50. And whoever gets a couple percentage points more ends up winning. 
Um, and so we don't want to do something that's going to alienate and, and divide our membership. So we posed it to our membership and just overwhelmingly people said, yes, we want to get involved. We want you to endorse Biden because we need to defeat Trump and we see a pathway with Biden where we have somebody we can work with. Um, and so we decided to, to move forward with it. And so now we're doing everything we can to make sure that um, we defeat Trump. And I think that that is exactly the right place we need to be. Mm-hmm. And finally, let's talk about, you mentioned Nike Action, the sister organization, and the lobbying that you do. I know you also endorse um, candidates for Congress and even local politics. Tell me a little bit about that work and also some of the Iranian-Americans that you have endorsed and that have won. So this is this is so important because... Like we're we're an American organization. My expertise, like I worked in Congress. Uh, our staff has worked in the U.S. government. Uh, my expertise is how do you influence the U.S. government, my government, the government I vote. You know, I I vote to decide, and so I think that, um, you know, people do need to understand like that is our purpose, and the way that we impact the issues that are important to us is we engage in our system and we you know decide what our government does in order to impact the rest of the world and and um you know Iran and things like that um so we we started this you know experiment in getting more deeply involved in the elections in 2015 by forming Nyack Action and we played a you know we played a role in 2018 in trying to work on getting the five congressional districts where there was the largest Iranian-American populations, but the representative was somebody who supported Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, who supported the, the Muslim ban, who supported maximum pressure and sanctions and all these things. And we decided we're going to target those districts. We're going to try to mobilize the communities in those districts as well as the broader Iranian-American community. And we're going to try to get those people kicked out of office. And so we endorsed in the the races in Orange County that were all held by Republicans before the 2018 election, as well as one ele- one race in Virginia. Um, and all of those seats flipped. Um, and we, you know, th- there is now no longer a Trump majority in the House of Representatives, but the Democrats got the majority. And so that was kind of a key strategic goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing similar things this year. The other piece of it, though, is we need to have Iranian-Americans running for these offices. We need, to, we need Iranian-Americans in Congress. We need to um, have our people in government. And so we have supported a number of uh, candidates at the congressional level, but also perhaps more importantly at the local and state level, people like Ana Eskamani, um, who are are running for state and local office, but also can become part of this bench of future Iranian-American leaders who are running for Congress, who are running for governor. Um, and just over the past, I mean, since 2015 when we started to now, I've seen kind of almost by orders of magnitude an increase in Iranian-Americans running for these offices um, and engaging in political life, serving as campaign staffers and, and things like that. So I've been really heartened. I think it's sort of a generational issue and it's a matter of kind of the political moment we're in and the increased activism that we're seeing, particularly among young people, but kind of across the board, where I see our community finally kind of stepping up and 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 becoming part of this process and we are here to encourage that and try to incentivize it and organize as much support as we can um, in order to get these iranian americans elected so that eventually we do have representation in the highest offices in america 
Let me just make a note that Ana Eskamani is in a member, I believe the first Iranian American in Florida to be elected to office. She serves in the local office in Florida. Well, on that note, Jamal, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you, Negajan. Take care. That was Jamal Abdi, president of the National Iranian American Council here in Washington. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. You can subscribe to us on your podcast apps, and please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. You can also sponsor the podcast and help us continue the project and be independent. You can follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast, where we post about our future guests and upcoming episodes. Until next time, goodbye.